Placenta. Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 92 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it is the Taumata Hill episode of the SLS cast. What or where is Talmada Hill? It turns out that Talmada Hill, uh, and that's the shortened name used by locals just to keep it simple. It's a hill in uh, like Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. Now, I said shortened because the actual name of the hill is... Taumata Wakata Nangihang Akuanao Watameta Epokai Wenuak. I'm not going to say that again. I'm sure I butchered it all over the place. Loosely translated, it's the summit where Tamatea, the man with the big knees, the climber of mountains, the land swallower who traveled about, played his nose flute to his loved one. I'm not making this shit up. I swear to God, that is what it loosely translates to, and that's the word. The word is all one word. It is the Guinness Book of World Records placeholder, longest placeholder because it has 92 letters. Wow. And in the parlance of Boogie Nights, yep, that was the long way down. So, with all that wonderful tongue-twisting and mesmerizing information, I, of course, am Matt. I wonder if anybody has tried to put that on a shirt. <laughs> well, the people who are in Wales who have the longest name for a... I, I want to say it was uh, it was for episode 62, I think, or 63 that we did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they have the longest name of a town, and it also takes, uh, takes up all 62 spots of a web address. <laughs> they... They have their shirts. They have shirts so that you can... So, uh, like, on the web address, do they have to, like, shorten it? Or do they get away with not having... No, it's because they... It's exactly 62 or 63 or whatever the longest you can possibly have is, and that's it. So, you can get that. Now, for this place that I just found out, this was... um, This one was through Wikipedia. And so, it's naturally just the wikipedia.org slash wiki slash... 92 letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Do anything fun this past weekend? Not really. No? Got to got to hang out. Uh, uh, well, not hang out. Got to talk with uh, our movie uh, Midnight Movie Nights friends there on Saturday evening. That was fun. Oh, were you on the show again this past Saturday? No, no, no. I wasn't on the show. I tweeted at them a little bit while they were while they were on. And then after the show, um, hooked up with them on Skype for a little bit. I like how it's tweeting at people. You know, like like it would be negative to say, oh, I'm talking at you. I'm talking to you. <laughs> but you cannot say that, I, oh, I'm tweeting to somebody. It's I'm tweeting at someone. That's the best way I figure to do it. So, yes. And then, of course, oh, and of course, in that vein, you know, SLScast.com, the show at SLScast.com. At SLS, at uh, the SLS cast for Twitter, and subscribe to us on iTunes and 
favorite us on you know stitcher radio search us on facebook i'm at nitwit12345 on twitter and tim is hidden on twitter and tim is tim on twitter (laughs) (laughs) oh so yeah uh no honestly though didn't have any uh anything special happen really school is kind of barren down now get into the nitty-gritty and have no time for anything yeah how's uh so you're not in spanish now right no no spanish taking spanish two and uh geology and uh math class and then just to make sure i hit full time i took a uh kinesiology credit oh okay so, learn about the yeah. body sure yeah. well caloric content and running and taking a pulse and yeah yeah do they teach you CPR in in that class, or no. is it too much of a liability for Texas? No, no, just, this is literally just a basic health and wellness course. Fancy, fancy. Well, I went Ooh, to yeah. I went to Newport the other day, which is fun and exciting. That's, that's Newport Beach, and I experienced something that I have not experienced to that extent out here on the West Coast, and that would be humidity. <laughs> I have not Ooh. felt so much humidity. Since I have been in Houston in like uh, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe like two or three Augusts ago, whenever I was there, right at the tail end of summer is when I experienced my last bit of humidity. And man, I was, I didn't miss it. I didn't miss it one bit. <laughs> no one ever does. Yeah, where it's like, oh, I'm too humid to go into a pool because it's like, I don't know if I'm really, if the water is even going to be cold. I mean, the water will probably it's be It's like warm. having a pool all around you all the time. Exactly. You're ba- you're bathing in your own pool. <laughs> <laughs> Your own pool of sweat. See, my favorite thing is, but I think you only hear it out here where people are like, "Oh God, it's so humid, it's so hot outside. I can really use a jacuzzi right now." It's like, why the hell do you want to go into a damn jacuzzi when it's like eighty <laughs> percent humidity outside and it's like in the nineties and you know there's no cloud coverage and you want to sit in a hot pool of boiling water i mean it's literally boiling it might be the jets but it's literally boiling and you got the salt and chlorine just gassing all in your eyes and it's crazy man. it's it's crazy. crazy it's crazy stuff crazy it shouldn't be allowed. it should not be it should be illegal especially whenever they mix salt water pool <laughs> with a chlorine pool. i don't know if you ever if you ever want to just rid yourself of ever feeling like you should get into a hot tub or a sauna or steam room, any any of those things ever again. Boop your pants? No, just look up the sauna championships. And you will never, ever want to go near a hot tub, a sauna, especially a sauna or a steam room ever again. Why is that? Like, Is Double. that like people who compete to see who can stay yes. in one of these yes. longest time? Exactly. And they make sure, they, they set it at like 110 degrees in there. And these people were like taking painkillers and liquid uh, or lotion version of lidocaine and stuff and putting it on their skin and everything like that so that they could stay in there for a long time and look people died really uh, from it and everything oh my god it's nasty oh it's so bad what was the prize second third degree burns i don't know five thousand bucks or something well you know it was just dumb it was yeah uh i i you know i i challenge you to to watch it because um, it's disgusting, but like a car wreck, you just can't help but look at it. 
Monday Night Activities here in California. Here with Tim. That's right. Monday Night Annoyances. Yes. Tune in at 10. All right. So I have a little bit of news of the weird for you, though, before we get into the real news. Would you like to hear it? Twist my arm, will you? Let's let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. This comes to us from Philly.com, uh, courtesy of Kelly O'Shea. Medical mystery. Woman gives birth to children, discovers her twin is actually the biological mother. Dun, dun, dun. For one woman, pregnancy was not enough to prove motherhood. After taking a DNA test, Lydia Fairchild of Washington State was shocked to find that she was not the mother of her own children. The same children that she remembered conceiving, carrying, and giving birth to. What had gone wrong? As it turns out, as a struggling single mother of two with a third child on the way, Fairchild, then 26 years old, decided to apply for government assistance. In order to qualify, Fairchild was required to undergo DNA testing to prove that she was the mother of children for whom she was claiming. When the test results came back, her world was shattered by an incredible revelation. She was not the mother of her two children. I know, you're thinking of that blonde joke, right? Where she's worried about if the kids are hers. This is incredible. Check it out. Now facing criminal charges for fraud, Fairchild was ordered to have a court representative be present at the birth of her third child for an immediate DNA test, which revealed the same results. Again, they watched the kid come out of her, and she still flunks the DNA test. Further DNA analysis showed that Fairchild was more like an aunt to her children than a mother, but Fairchild didn't have a sister. Then the discovery of a similar case in Boston brought to light another possibility. It turned out that Fairchild had a rare genetic condition known as Chimera. Essentially, she had a twin in her own body. Graham Noble of GuardianLV.com provided more on the condition those rare quote those rare individuals dubbed chimeras had started out as twins in the early stage of pregnancy one of the twins had merged with that has been absorbed by the other twin the cells of the consumed twin however did not disappear and remained alive in one concentrated area of their sibling's body in essence a human chimera is one person made up of two separate sets of genetic material. They are, in fact, their own twins. Weird. End quote. What a guess. Fortunately, once Fairchild's condition was discovered, all charges were dropped and her case was dismissed. So, yes. It turns out there's a human version of a lion's head, wing, or body, whatever, I don't know. What is it? It's like a... Is it maybe it's a serpent head lion body? Yeah, and shit's weird. Wings or something weird. It's like she has her own like pod person within her. Yeah, like her her literal womb is an egg making factory. Is the twin from when she? I mean, that's like crazy weird. Yeah. Oh man. Anyway. So I thought that was really, really cool. Oh. I wanted to share that with you. It's weird, but really cool. Man, I you know, you've said some really weird-ass shit on this show. But for <laughs> some reason, that just like rubbed me the wrong way. 
well, it wasn't it wasn't meant to do that exactly. I was just kind of thought it was cool. But I mean, anyway, not like so. in a in a bad way. I mean, it was a very pleasing rub in the wrong way. It was it was just a little weird, you know, just kind of like oh that, huh? Hey man, I don't call it news of the weird for nothing. <laughs> And there you go. There you have it. <laughs> wow. All right. Wow. Well, then let's get down to the real stuff here. Oof. We've taken up enough time with all this nonsense. Here we go, folks. It is the news. I'll go first. Uh, let me follow that up with uh, Quentin Tarantino news. Uh, it turns out that, well, actually, uh, the new Beverly Cinema, which is one of my all-time favorite cinemas, it's been ranked as one of the top five movie theaters in the country, mainly top five for those who really love films, not necessarily for the general movie-going audience. It's known for its grindhouse style of, of, of movie showings. Like, they always usually have a double feature every night. For the most part. And it's seven bucks for two movies, and it's great. Popcorn's cheap, the concessions are pretty decent, and the prices are great. And uh, it's it's a really cool place to have next door. You know, it's a really neat place to have in your neighborhood. And I always love going there. And I realized I was wanting to go see a movie there a couple weeks ago, and I saw that it's actually shut down for the whole week of September due to uh, due to interior renovations of some sort. Well, I was I was Dwelling more into the uh, the reasons of why it was shut down, and I don't think this is related in any way. I think it's just because they're remodeling it. But it turns out that Quentin Tarantino actually took complete control of the movie theater. He actually owned the movie theater for the past seven years. And this is from a LA Weekly article entitled, Quentin Tarantino on the new Beverly after seven years as owner... I wanted to make it mine. This is written by Chuck Wilson, and it says this. For L.A. movie lovers, the new Beverly Cinema Revival House is sacred territory. Filmmaker Quentin Tarantino owns the theater, but it's always been managed and programmed by Michael Torgan, son of the theater's father, the late Sherman Torgan. When rumors reached us that Tarantino would be taking over as a full-time programmer, we reached out to him for clarification. And the following is pretty much uh, the discussion between the two. How did you come to be involved with New Beverly as an owner? LA Weekly asks, and Quentin Tarantino responds, Sherman Torgan opened the New Beverly Theater in 1978, and it had been running it, and he had been running it for decades. I had been going there forever, and somewhere in the last four years of Sherman running the theater, word got to me that it might close. So I started supplementing him started giving him about $5,000 a month to pay his bills and meet his expenses. He never had to pay it back. I love Los Angeles, and I love the new Beverly, and I didn't want to see it go. But then, unfortunately, Sherman died in June of 2007, and the people who owned the property wanted to, wanted to turn it into a supercuts. So, working through Michael, I was able to buy the property, and Michael's been running the theater ever since. I could say, hey, Michael, we can do this. We can show that. But basically, it's really Michael's baby. Is it true that you offered Michael the, the chance to stay on as manager but not as a programmer and he declined? We're still figuring that out. I want to be involved as much as possible. And they ask this. You're passionate about the survival of 35mm. 
Is that what this is about? That was the thing that pushed me over to say, now's the time to do it, says Tarantino. I want the new Beverly to be a bastion for 35mm films. I want it to stand for something. When you see a film on the new Beverly calendar, you don't have to ask whether it's going to be shown in DCP, Digital Cinema Projection, or in 35mm. You know it's playing in 35 because it's the new Beverly. And the article goes on for there, uh, another another page or two from there. Gotta check it out again. It's from the uh, it's from laweekly.com, and I I love the idea of that. Like you know it's gonna be thirty five millimeter if you uh, if it's the Beverly Cinema. It's not the Beverly Cinema if it's not thirty five millimeter. It's like a very classy way of promoting this theater, and I love it. And you know they they've always done a fantastic job with uh, with I guess Michael who was the original programmer. He did a great job, and they picked some great movies. But I think with uh, Tarantino taking the reins, I I'm pretty I feel pretty confident in saying that it can only get better. So hey, go for me. I'm happy to live over here. And another bit of Tarantino news, real quick from the Rap.com. Tarantino's Hateful Eight begins shooting in January, and the Weinstein Company is distributing. And I'm not going to read the entire article, but it does say that the post-Civil War Western will be shot entirely in 65mm film. And it also says that this will be uh, the widest 70mm release in over 20 years. And it will also have a 35mm and digital release as well. It's kind of funny saying digital release since he just talked about how much he hated it, but uh, it's hard to really get a movie to show on a whole bunch of theaters since a whole bunch of theaters don't even have 35mm projectors anymore. Uh, So this is cool. I think the movie is going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to watching it in 70mm, 65mm, whatever I can see it in because it's going to be a beautiful film. Big in scope, so it'll be fun. So yes, look forward to The Hateful Eight coming to you soon in 70mm. Woohoo! Alright, well, I'm going to follow that up with a pair of stories regarding Captain America 3. Um, the first one is from ScreenRant.com. This here is courtesy of Sarah Moran. Captain America 3 starts shooting in April in Atlanta. Yes, you heard it here. Captain America, the Winter Soldier, kicked off the 2014 blockbuster season with a bang. And although it may, uh, it's was going to be eclipsed by Guardians of the Galaxy, Cap's first sequel was an unequivocal smash hit. Of course, this means our expectations for Captain America 3 are very high. So, yeah, this is uh, good. And again, with the April start date, that means... Um, the production will be happening right as Age of Ultron releases. So that's going to be good. And everything's going to be falling right in line. So it's nice to see that. I'm, I'm a little sad, though, because Chris Evans has said that he pretty much wants to step behind the camera for pretty much ever after he's done with Captain America. So looks like you've got maybe two more movies for Cap- <laughs> featuring Chris Evans anyway. Um, tying into the Captain America 3 news that's starting shooting in April comes to us from flickeringmyth.com courtesy of Gary Collinson. Anthony Russo talks Captain America 3 and confirms return of the Winter Soldier. 
Yes, ladies and gentlemen, during an interview for the home entertainment release of Captain America The Winter Soldier, co-director Anthony Russo spoke about the status of Steve Rogers' next outing in 2016's Captain America 3, confirming that Sebastian Stan's Winter Soldier will be returning alongside Chris Evans and that the relationship between Bucky and Steve will, quote, form one layer of the next movie, end quote. Here's, here it is, folks. This is going to just do the whole big quote right here for you. Quote, The relationship between Cap and the Winter Soldier was never resolved at the end of the last movie. Thinking about where that relationship can go is a piece of the puzzle for us for sure. That character is a wonderfully, beautifully tragic figure in the sense of, is he the world's most feared assassin or is he the world's longest serving POW? Is he innocent by reason of insanity or the equivalent of it because he's been mind controlled or is he irredeemable? Is he ever going to be acceptable to Cap again as the friend that he used to be before he was the Winter Soldier? These are very philosophical, emotional questions that pique our interest and definitely form one layer of the rest of the movie. End quote. So, Tim, with this information here, I am curious, do you think that Captain America 3 has the ability to be the to actually give it some better depth that the second movie lacked. Yes, because his brother, Captain America's brother, the Winter Soldier, is the one who should be, if it's following the comics, should be the one that's going to be taking over the Captain America persona. Because that's, I think, tradition. I don't know if that's traditionally what happens in the in the actual regular uh, Captain America comic books or if that's a part of one of the uh, one of the spin-off Captain America comic books because there's like I don't know I mean I, I it seems like there's like 25 different versions of Marvel superheroes out there and uh, you know I think if that is the case there's definitely a lot of depth there to play around with a lot of you know uh, you know because I don't know if, if uh, Captain America Chris Evans's Captain America if he's gonna die uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. So there's a lot of emotional crap that can, you know, that can go on there. Right on. Well, very cool. All right, what do you have for us, sir? All right, so next up for me is from the hollywoodreporter.com, an article entitled How Maze Runner and Barco's New Panoramic Format Could Alter Movie Making. And this is written by Carolyn Giardina. And it says this, Could three screens stitched together be the wave of the future? Earlier this year, digital cinema projector maker Barco unveiled Escape, a new theater configuration that is sort of Cinerama for the digital age. Now, the first Escape theaters are getting the finishing touches and will open with Fox's September 19th release of The Maze Runner, the first feature film to be specially prepped for exhibition in these venues. One of the early challenges for this brand will be how to produce movies to support the format. Escape uses three digital cinema projectors and three screens, one in the traditional center position and the others on either side wall to create a panoramic image. And Fox is already testing production options from visual effects to unique multi-camera setups. In the case of The Maze Runner, the film was shot in a traditional way before the decision to use Escape was made. The center screen will display the live-action film, and imagery on the side screens will be extensions of the scenes, 
i.e. a larger maze creating visual effects. Based on the speed, we needed to get this to market in the creative challenges. We tried a new way of rendering and creating the material. Ted Shilowitz, who is Barco's sim evangelist and also works as a futurist at Fox, tells a Hollywood Reporter, This pipeline was built around a critic gaming engine for rendering and computing hardware from Devil and Demon. The artists worked inside the D&D mobile production unit dubbed Devil's Playground. Fox is also experimenting with how to photograph movies for Escape, trying various single and multi-camera setups. That has included shooting vistas, lensed with a red epic, and Red Bull tests that involved multiple GoPro camera configurations for action shots. Additional testing has involved converting previously released films to the Escape format. We did a test with The Devil's Double with Lionsgate released in 2011, and now we are discussing the possibility of a re-release of that movie in the Escape format, says Shilowitz. Production costs involving Escape remain to be seen, Shilowitz admits, because there are so many different ways to skin this cat that we're just learning how. The first Escape Theater in the U.S. includes Cinemark 18 NXD at the Promenade at Howard Hughes Center in Los Angeles, Cinemark Paradise 24 NXD in Davie, Florida, Cinemark Legacy Theater in XD in Plano, Texas, Cinemark at Seven Bridges in IMAX in Woodridge, Illinois, and Cinemark's Redwood Downtown NXD in Redwood City, California. The Maze Runner is also scheduled to open in October across Europe, including at a new Kinepolis, Brussels Escape Theater. And Shilowitz declines to comment on ticket prices, noting that these will be set by the individual theater. End all quotes. Is this a little too excessive since we are we, 4D theaters just came out? Now are you are they saying that soon there's going to be a 4D theater and then one of these escape theaters next door to it? It's it's just it's a little too much, don't you think? I don't know. I I I imagine at some point we're just going to end up with Circle Vision 360 or 180, whatever the fuck kind of shit they show in the Canada Pavilion at Epcot. I imagine that they're just going to do that. They're just going. As a matter of fact, they're probably just going to have. Uh, you're going to pay like a thousand dollars and then you're going to walk down the hallway to your theater which is actually just uh a door to a tarmac where they fly you to epcot and then put you in that look it's a it's a dome all the way around you and then you have to figure out how to get home because it (laughs) you're right it's completely it's just getting too fucking crazy i understand technology is cool i understand there's some novelty things I'm sure people were having this exact same discussion when someone first said IMAX. But you do eventually cross a threshold. And putting three fucking big-ass screens together, I think you might have jumped the shark, so to speak. I think you might have Ian Zeringed it. Because it turns out we were saying his name wrong, wrong last week. He goes by Ian. <clears throat> so I think we might have, I'm not going to call it jumping the shark anymore. I think we're just going to say Ian Zeringed it. All right, well, next up for me, from HollywoodReporter.com, courtesy of Rebecca Ford and Boris Kitt, Underworld Reboot in the works. Welcome back to Underworld. 
tried to do that, kind of like the whole Jurassic Park thing, but whatever. Lakeshore Entertainment is moving forward with a reboot of the Vampire Action franchise, hiring Corey Goodman to write the script. Lakeshore's Tom Rosenberg and Gary Lucchesi are producing. The first Underworld film, directed by Len Weissman and starring Kate Beckinsale, was released in 2003. Playing the strong vampire, Selena made Beckinsale into a bankable action star, and three films followed. In 2006... Uh, he had Underworld Evolution, 2009 prequel Underworld Rise of the Lycans, and 2012's Underworld Awakening. Underworld Awakening, the 3D film that saw Beckinsale reprise her role as Celine, um, was the top earner in the franchise, taking in $160 million worldwide. The Vampires vs. Werewolves franchise has grossed $458.2 million worldwide. And all I can say is... Really? This is worse than Sony trying to reboot Spider-Man after 10 years. I mean... Just... It's a cool concept, but I just really think they're just begging for trouble by doing this. And that sucks. Next up for me... Okay, so whatever you think of the movie Wayne's World, Matt... What is your favorite part of Wayne's World? What jumps out? What what pops in your mind and think, oh yes, that is the best part of Wayne's World. This is what I look forward to. What is that? Little. Yellow. Different. No, no, it's not the whole anti-corporate thing where they make fun of being anti-corporate by doing like seven commercials in a row. <laughs> oh yeah, the Pizza it Hut was, one. It wasn't that. The... Yeah, and the Pizza Hut Pepsi. and the Nuprin and the Pepsi and the Reebok and or Nike or whatever. Oh no, it wasn't that. Maybe it's the drum solo. No, maybe was it Ed O'Neill and his you know ruminations on how life is terrible? Uh, perhaps maybe Foxy Lady. Yeah, uh, the the no stairway to heaven thing. Do you think Bugs Bunny is attractive? Uh, uh, golly gee, street hockey. <laughs> it probably wasn't. Probably wasn't that. You know, I'm gonna go with the Queen thing. It's it's the it's it's the Queen thing, right? Bohemian Rhapsody. You are correct. Well, it turns out that <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody was almost not. In Wayne's World, why do you ask? Because both The hell you say, <laughs> sir. The hell you say. Because Bohemian Rhapsody, believe it or not, came out well before Wayne's World. In fact, by that time, people weren't listening to Queen as much as they were listening to, say, what they originally wanted to use, which were... Which was a song written by Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses was huge. Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 came out one year before this movie. And so that was kind of the hot thing. But Mike Myers said, no, I will not do this movie unless Bohemian Rhapsody is in this movie. And this is what he says. He was. This is from uh, The Sound.com. It's, uh, there, it's uh, The Sound LA is a... Uh, rock and roll station out here and this is from an article from the sound saying that uh, entitled entitled bohemian rhapsody almost didn't make it into wayne's world and they ask could you imagine wayne's world without the classic bohemian rhapsody scene and i think we all say no because that movie that song is perfect they were interviewing mike myers and this is what Mike Myers had to say about this whole thing. And he said that an example of something I fought very, very hard for, and it was my first movie. It was Bohemian Rhapsody in Wayne's World. They wanted Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses were very, very popular. They were a fantastic band. 
queen at that point, not by me and not by hardcore fans, but the public had sort of forgotten about them. Freddie had gotten sick, the last time we had seen them was at Live Aid, and then there were a few albums after that where they were sort of straying away from their arena rock roots. But I always loved Bohemian Rhapsody. I thought it was a masterpiece. So I fought really, really hard for it. And at one point I said, well, I'm out. I don't want to make this movie if it's not Bohemian Rhapsody. And the article ends with, good call, Mike. And the world thanks you again today. Schwing! Wait, wait, girl, tell me about the show, man. I love you, man. Yeah, and I love you too, Terry. No, 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 I mean it, man. I love you. No, I mean it. I love you. No, you don't, man. Guard, hey, come over here. I think Terry has something he wants to say to you. I love you, man. All right, well, I've got a pair of Michael Fassbender stories here for you. First one up, from FlixinBits.com. Michael Fassbender talks Magneto and X-Men Apocalypse, says he's been tossing around ideas with writer Simon Kinberg. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Out and about on the promotional campaign for Frank, which is fantastic, according to FlixandBits.com. In the U.S., Michael Fassbender opened up briefly about X-Men Apocalypse, his next outing as Magneto. Asked if he was looking forward to the prospect of going up against a character like Apocalypse, Fassbender responded, quote, Yeah, I mean, I haven't got a script or anything yet, but I'm always excited to see where Simon Kinberg's going to go with the next X-Men. X-Men's been great to me and allowed me to do so much, including films like Frank. I've had a lot of fun with the cast and with the character Magneto. So I had a good chat with Simon when we were on our way to Moscow, and we tossed around some ideas on the plane over there. So I'm pretty excited to see how it all comes together. End quote. So what do you think he's going to do, Tim? What do you th- I mean, are you thinking he's just going to carry on with the way that Magneto's been going? Or do you think he's going to try and push for some additional intrigue let's say well probably i would think pushing for some additional intrigue because i think apocalypse definitely needs to set itself apart from it being a wolverine vehicle because days of future fat <laughs> days of future fast days of Pu- god damn it days of future fast definitely felt like a wolverine movie Maybe just a little bit more so than an X-Men movie. And so I think with that, you really need to do something additional with the characters to make them intriguing again and more entertaining again. And, uh, you know, I think he might be onto something. I believe you are right, sir. I believe you are right. So on the other side of that, from VCPost.com, we have... uh, Courtesy of a staff writer, we have the following. Assassin's Creed to take place in 15th century Spain. Co-producer and film lead Michael Fassbender to take on dual roles. 
Yes, not much is explicitly defined as to the production and filming of the Assassin's Creed movie, but according to indie source, ins- I'm sorry, inside sources cited by Film Divider, the Spanish Inquisition will be the setting of the upcoming 2015 film. Michael Fassbender, who will also co-produce the film through his DMC film banner, will be taking on dual roles as a Spanish assassin named Aguilar de (laughs) Agororobo and his modern-day descendant, felon, and death row inmate, Michael Lynch. Yeah. So I'm I'm thinking that's going to be pretty interesting. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with the with that particular take on it um, mainly because that's not how Assassin's Creed works but or at least the universe of Assassin's Creed but I'm I'm interested I, I mean I'll see it mainly more for Michael Fassbender than what they're doing with the dual role thing all right, do you have anything else for us sir Yes I'll just end on this okay so people love the Marvel villain, Loki. He's great. I don't think he's that great, but I'll give Tom Hiddleston a lot of a lot of brownie points because he definitely made this character his own. And it is definitely memorable, but I really I think it's gotten to the point to where it's like, you know, it's you know, just because the fans love him doesn't mean you have to put him in everything because he's just gonna you, nobody can trust him. You can't trust the guy. So why do you just keep putting him in the movies? It, it doesn't make any sense. But for those of you out there who cannot get enough Loki, well, guess what? There is a two-hour and ten-minute-ish Loki movie that somebody made for you. This is from CinemaBlend.com. Loki finally gets his own movie thanks to a fan written by Eric Eisenberg. Tom Hiddleston's Loki isn't a titular lead in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Instead, losing the spotlight to both Hemsworth's store, God, Hemsworth's store, I think I'm very dyslexic. Instead, losing the spotlight to both Chris Hemsworth's Thor and the collective Avengers. And some fans don't seem to think that's really fair. Hence, why we now have the feature, which is on this uh, below this article here, which is a re-edited cut of Thor, the Avengers, and Thor, the Dark World, called Loki, Brother of Thor. As you can tell by watching the movie, which clocks in a little over 2 hours and 15 minutes, this is no mere cut, reassemble and paste job. Instead, Vimeo user Loki Odinson has actually done his best to create something close to what an actual Loki movie would look like. To do so, he collected footage not only from aforementioned features, but also from bonus material available on the various Marvel Studios Blu-ray releases. For example, the visions at the start of the movie that have Loki wielding Thor's hammer, that's actually from a screen test that Tom Hiddleston did when trying out for the first Thor movie. He originally auditioned to be the God of Thunder. End all quotes. Two hours and 15 minutes of Loki, brother of Thor, on Vimeo, for you fans. (laughs) <laughs> right on. All right, well, I'm going to wrap up the news with this one quickie little piece here from SlashFilm.com, courtesy of Peter Scarretta. The early buzz, Kevin Smith's tusk is fucked up, disturbing, and hilarious. 
This, of course, is coming to us from the Toronto International Film Festival 2014. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Smith's latest film, Tusk, premiered Saturday night at the 2014 Toronto International Film Festival as part of the festival's Midnight Madness selection. The first reactions uh, flooded Twitter, and it seems like everyone agrees the movie is fucked up. Is that a good thing? The film reportedly received a standing ovation, and most of the reactions seem to be positive. For those of you who don't know, Tusk is, quote, a chilling horror tale about the perils of storytelling, following a brash American podcaster as he braves the Canadian wilds to interview an old man with an incredible past, only to discover the man's dark secret involves a walrus. End quote. And, um, yeah, just in case you didn't already know, the film stars Justin Long, Haley Joel Osment, and Genesis Rodriguez. So, yeah, if uh, you didn't know about it, now you can go check it out. Tusk. Tusk. I imagine that might be one of our uh, Halloween flicks if it comes out in time. Most definitely. Yeah. All right. So that's going to end the news there for us and bring us to Three Squared. <laughs> Yes! Three squared, three squared, three squared. So this week's three squared is brought to us by Bob Gunton. We are doing our favorite Bob Gunton flicks. Now, Bob Gunton is along the lines of Stephen Toblowski. You might not recognize the name, but when you've seen the flicks that he's in, you will recognize the face. And of course, the easiest pick for him uh, would be he was the warden in the Shawshank Redemption. So if that helps you any. And uh, as I'm sure Tim will uh, note, he is definitely a not just an amazing screen actor, but also a prolific stage actor. But uh, yeah, I mean, we actually reached out to our friends over uh, uh, the Midnight Movie Nights there, Nights with a K, that's MidnightMovieNights.com, at Midnight Movie Nights. I'm sorry, Movie Nights Pod, rather. Again, nights with a K. Our friends at That Fracking Cat and at Miranda Janelle were pulled. And uh, by press time, as it were, at That Fracking Cat actually decided to contribute. So we want to say thank you to him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout out his picks right quick. His Bob Gunton picks were Patch Adams, Demolition Man, and Broken Arrow. Very good picks. I'm mad because he actually took two of mine, and I'll go into those uh, in detail when I when we get there. But Tim, did you want to start, or did you want me to start? You can go ahead and start. Why not? <laughs> okay. All right. So again, Robert Patrick Bob Gunton Jr. and uh, <clears throat> the awesome character actor and stage actor he is actually 68 so definitely glad he's sticking around to continue to grace us with all these wonderful things um my picks for the for him again he's he literally is up there with like steven tablowski for me he's just a great character actor immediately recognizable but at the same time most people just 
wouldn't know him un- unless they saw him. And the thing is, is that he's been in such great movies. And I'm going to go chronologically here. Um, first up, from 1993, Demolition Man. The 1993 science fiction film is directed by Marco Brambilla and uh, starred Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes, of course, as the guys who uh, both get cryogenically frozen and released about the same time. And, uh, yeah, so we get the amazing Bob Gunton. He plays Chief George Earl in this movie. And, uh, you, you know, he's bald. That, that you should be able to spot him there. Uh, and he's just absolutely funny. Um, it, it, just a great performance. So quirky. But it works in the context of the movie and tons of fun. So you get to watch him that. Also great performances by a bunch of wonderful people. Uh, Sandra Bullock, uh, Benjamin Bratt, Dennis Leary. So yeah, it's it's uh, good stuff there. Good stuff. Next up for me from 1996... Broken Arrow. Again, see, he. I'm telling you, that fracking cat, he stole my picks, you know. I'm, but we forgive him. From uh, 1996, we had Broken Arrow. This is, of course, the action film. It was directed by John Woo and starred John Travolta and Christian Slater as guys who are uh, Army or Air Force? Air Force, I believe. Yeah, they're Air Force pilots, and John Travolta basically ends up stealing a stealth bomber with nuclear warheads, and... There's your thing. Well, now, who's who's he going to sell to? Well, he's got to sell to a bad guy. And Pritchett's the bad guy he's got to buy, he's got to sell to. And who's that played by? Bob Gunton. Amazing performance by Bob Gunton. He is just such the, oh, he's such a pain in the ass bad guy, too. He's the, he's the guy that you literally just can't wait for to die. And they have a lot of fun with that. It's very inventive. So you've got, uh, you know, great supporting cast. Uh, one of the favorite guys on this one here is uh, Delroy Lindo. And he, he just does a really cool job. And this, of course, is the ultimate ballet of violence flick that is John Woo when he does these things. So it's, it's just great fun and definitely did well in the theater. So that's good. Last but not least for me on this one, though, is going to be from 1997, uh, Clint Eastwood's Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. It's the drama film, again, directed by Clint Eastwood, and it's adapted from the book of the same name by John Berendt. Um, mainly, it stars Kevin Spacey and John Cusack, but you also get just an amazing performance out of Bob Gunton. He uh, plays Finley Largent in this film. And this one is... This is definitely one of those love it or hate it kind of films and I absolutely fall into the love it category but uh, good performances all the way around and yet just again solidly striking performance from Bob Gunton on this and I, I just have to say totally love it really great stuff so yeah 93's Demolition Man 96's Broken Arrow and 97's Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil are my picks for Bob Gunton flicks for three squared. Take it away, Tim. Alrighty, so I'm going to cheat a little bit. Not right now, but I will in a little bit. Uh, And I'll admit to the cheating once I get there. I struggled quite a bit in trying to figure out which flicks to choose 
of 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 Bob Gutton's, and then I realized that it's hard to choose movies that he was in because he's been in a lot of movies where he's only played super small uh, characters, super very small parts, not many scenes, and we kind of made a deal not to pick. Um, not to pick Shawshank because that's definitely the go-to, uh, the the go-to movie when you think of Bob Gutton. Because not only was that one of his first big movies, but it is definitely probably one of the best villainous roles, let alone one of the best evil warden roles that one has uh, has one has attempted. But I think it would definitely be foolish to not mention. Just mention his performance, and I'm actually going to read this little quote from this article of a guy who, uh, who who wrote an article basically like an alternative best supporting actor in 1994 would have been Bob Gunton. That would have been his pick in Shawshank, and I think this little paragraph here encapsulates his performance and how he looks at a character because Bob Gunton is in fact theater trained. And this is what it says. It says that, quote, the first time we meet the warden, he welcomes the prisoners, might actually be one of Gunton's most disturbing scenes. He opens up the scene as one would expect a warden from the period. Gunton is dignified and dominant with a certain amount of piety. He is the strict and firm administrator, but we see more to him when after he asks if the men have any more questions. One man does ask a question, causing just the slightest of indication in Norton that makes Captain Hadley violently discipline the man. Norton doesn't change his expression, and in that Gunton shows the true evil of the man in this unchanging expression. The expression shows that such cruelty is something maintained as a commonplace institution by Warden Norton. End quote. And I think that, like I said, it definitely encapsulates his character and his performance. I just wanted to mention that because I think everybody pretty much knows that uh, if if you know this guy, this is definitely your favorite performance of his. But I'm going to have to go with one of my choices being Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. Why, you may ask. I'm sure there are people out there saying that that is blasphemous. But you know what? This does not pertain to great movies. This is great performances. You know, the movie doesn't have to be that great, but you know, there are actors in really shitty movies that are really good in that really shitty movie. Kevin Spacey, for example, is in a lot of them. But Bob Gutton plays the character of Quinn. And you might remember that classic scene when Ace Ventura is interrogating him and he's doing the whole like he grabs a knife and Quinn thinks he's gonna like you know like slice him up or something but no he uses the knife and fork and does the you know on the plate and you know hurts his ears and then he goes over him and he like touches his eye and you know Ace does a little eye gag thing and Quinn's cowering on the floor he's tied to the chair and but he, the chair is on the floor and he's on his back and he's like oh no my brother used to do that to me oh no 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 and you know it's not necessarily the best performance but again you know he is channeling the character of a or the persona of the bad guy that is being tortured, and yet his wimpiness is shown due to the ridiculousness of what of, of Ace Ventura's interrogation tactics. And it was just really funny. And and as a kid, me being a kid growing up, being born in 1988, 
and growing up in the early 90s, and of course, Ace Ventura was kind of a staple for kids in the, in the 90s, and, you know, teenagers and adults as well. But I think especially for kids, and since Jim Carrey was kind of like the rising star of that time also, it was definitely a big thing, and seeing Bob Gunn in that movie... You know, it last it made a, a lasting impression in a way to where after that movie and after Shawshank, I always recognized him and I knew who always knew who he was and I was always happy to see him. So Ace Ventura from 1994 was uh, is my first pick. Next up for me is Patch Adams, and yes, I know Fracking Cat mentioned Patch Adams or chose Patch Adams as his pick. But I gotta say that he played Dr. Walcott, and he was the dean of the Virginia Medical School that Patch Adams works at, or Tins works at, and he is definitely a very domineering character. You know, he, again, he plays not necessarily the bad guy, but he is the dean that everybody doesn't want to cross. You know, they, they, they want to follow his rules. He's, he's the rule man. And of course, Rob Williams is the, is the, plays the character who, you know, pushes his buttons, breaks all the rules, and does whatever the hell he wants for the sake of the wellness of, for the sake of the wellness of the, uh, of the, of the patients. And so another good performance there. And lastly, I think I'm going to have to switch over to Broadway, theater, TV performances, because these actually stand out more than, I think, uh, a number of of these other movies. Because, I mean, I'm not going to pick Demolition Man also, or Broken Arrow, because those two definitely come come into mind as well. In 1989, Broadway did a revival of Sweeney Todd, and he played Sweeney. Yes, he played Sweeney Todd before Johnny Depp played Sweeney Todd, for those of you who didn't know that. But it was for his role of Juan Perón in the musical Evita, in which he was nominated for a Tony Award. This this guy can sing. He can sing. Not only can he act, and he can be a great... And, you know, you wonder why the hell is he only playing supporting roles? He deserves more. He can sing. He can act. He's been nominated for stuff. He deserves more. Um, and a TV show I want to mention is 24. He plays... Uh, he was the... the um, Oh, man. Chief, he was the chief of staff, and I think he became the secretary. Secretary of State. I believe that's what he ended up becoming in 24. And he is really the only character that... I mean, they, they try to play it off as, like, he's gonna he can be a bad guy, like, in the first season he's in. But then he turns out not to be a bad guy. And he's always he's always the good guy throughout the entire show. You know, whenever the seasons that he is on, he is always the good guy. And he plays it so well and so honest. And he created a very dignified character that you actually respect more than the president. You know, the people that play the president that he works under. You know, it's Cherry Jones. In the in the particular seasons, and uh, so yeah, I mean this guy is definitely he definitely makes an impact on those that have, that that notice him and notice his performances. And I hope after listening to this three squared that if you guys catch his performances, you might you know you might get a little bit more from it after listening to this. So Bob Gunton, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, Patch Adams, and then a mixture of his. Television work in his Broadway theater work.
scripture by now you've heard terrible thing man that young less than a year to go trying to escape broke Captain Madley's heart to shoot him truly it did we just have to put it behind us move on I'm done Everything stops. Get someone else to run your scams. Nothing stops. Nothing. Well, you will do the hardest time there is. No more protection from the guards. I'll pull you out of that one bunk Hilton and cast you down with the sodomites. You'll think you've been fucked by a train. In the library, gone, sealed off brick by brick. We'll have us a little book barbecue in the yard. We'll see the flames for miles. We'll dance around it like wild engines. You understand me? Catching my drift? Where am I being obtuse? another month to think about it. You did cheat, bastard. <laughs> All right, well then, let's go ahead and wrap it up here. Bring us home. It is, of course, the movie. <laughs> Yes, the movies this week, The Congress, Grey Owl, and Gandhi. The last two, of course, are directed by Richard Attenborough, who, as we noted last week, passed. So, you know, a couple of movies by him to let you, let, let you be exposed to some direction. And then, of course, a uh, foreign film. So where do you want to start, sir? Grey Owl. Oh, you too. You come to help me out? These little fellas live with us. We call them the Mix. The Ojibwe name for Beaver is Amic, little talking brother. And they do talk too. You want to say hi to everyone? Hmm? Beaver's a family minded, you know. The beaver pair will stay together for life, just like us. Some of us. <laughs> We're not planning on holding on to these little kittens too long. As soon as they've grown, we'll let them go back into the wild. Have some babies of their own. Uh, the fact is, I used to trap beaver. But a few weeks ago, I quit. Never thought I would. Now I know it's wrong. They're almost extinct. Too many trappers, not enough beaver. The beaver have gone from the north. Well, maybe you don't know it, but 
these little fellas make the North the way it is. They build their dams, make their ponds, where the moose feed, the muskrats, the waterfowl. And come the spring, they open up their dams, let the meltwater run, and you've got an irrigation system a thousand miles wide. And take away the beaver, and you break the chain. So I'm speaking up for the beaver now. If we don't watch out, they'll just be another extinct species. I guess I feel it more than most because, well, people like me are pretty much an extinct species too. But I guess you can get along without me, but these little fellas, the world would be a poorer place without them. Ah, uh, yes. A five-star movie if there ever wasn't one. <laughs> I mean, what? Huh? No, okay. This movie is definitely not... Uh, if you like beavers, you'll like Grey Owl. <laughs> it should have been called Grey Beaver. Well, I think censors yeah. would have had an issue but the, with the, that. The, well, the, yeah, but see, you're just setting everybody up for, you know, sadness, because it's not even fun for the euphemism, you know. It would be a good drinking game. You could die of alcohol poisoning, though, with the amount of beaver talk in this, if you drank every time they talked about a beaver. <sighs> Let's see here. Grey Owl, 1999 biopic, is directed by Richard Attenborough, stars Pierce Brosnan as the real-life British schoolboy turned Indian trapper Grey Owl. Uh, Archibald Bellaney is his name. I can see why he would change his name to Grey Owl there. I mean, you know, there was another famous Archibald in the world. His name's Cary Grant. Do you see how that works? Nobody keeps the name Archibald. Anyway, this movie... Um, I, I'm not really sure exactly what they were thinking when they made this movie. Uh, not because they were lifetime you know, the, movie. I I don't know. I I think it was. I think there was something to be said. Uh, there was a story to tell here. I think they just went about it. They just went about it in the complete wrong way. just want to know why the hell it wasn't in widescreen. It was in standard screen. It was it was boxed. Uh, I don't know. The movie just... Okay. This was a very ambitious movie. It was a movie with a great vision. But the vision was never realized. It just... Yeah. Not, not good. Very boring. Very slow. Too much talk. Not enough action. And I don't mean that as a dig against dramas or anything like that. It just, it's so slow. So very slow. And, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they were trying to go for Dances with Beavers? I don't, maybe? I don't, yeah. I, I got nothing. Um, two stars for me. I just didn't like this movie. I, I appreciate the fact that they tried. Um, they The talent is there. The funny thing is the talent really is there. It's just none of it comes together. And it's just so incredibly slow. Two stars. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, two stars on my end as well. I mean, technically, the movie has a lot of issues. Not just with the storytelling, but technically as well. It was apparently the cinematography was done by 
a really good cinematographer. One who has worked on a lot of really, really good movies. And yet, the movie looks like a Lifetime movie. The movie was made in 2000. It was, it was made in 1999 and came out in 99, 2000. And yet, it looks like a Lifetime movie from 1992. It really does. Like, the colors are all the same. I mean, the, the lighting is all the same. It's just like a base lighting throughout the entire movie. Uh, there's no tone to it. There's no, like... I, there's no character to the look of the movie. Like, you don't know when it's morning. You don't know when it's afternoon. You don't really know yeah, when it's evening, really, other than when it's dark out and there's, like, a fire. But even even the characters, whenever the characters are lit... Tonally, skin tonally, everything looks the same. And to me, I don't know if it was, I, I mean, an issue with the cinematographer. I don't know if maybe they had a change cinematographer or, or what, or they had an issue with, I don't know. But it definitely looks like a Lifetime movie. And, <laughs> and one thing I wrote here, which, Matt, tell me if you thought this also. I wrote here that there are many moments when it felt like I was watching an SNL skit, when they're re reenacting or making fun of a dramatic Oscar movie, like a, like an Oscar-worthy movie, you know? Like, you can watch SNL skits, I don't know about now, but at least in the past, say for, like, Gladiator or Saving Private Ryan or Dances with Wolves, they would always do these skits where they were making fun of the movie. Well, kind of making fun of the movie, but, like, making fun of the period and being like, oh, sir, well, uh, you know, just totally hamming it up. But the, this movie itself felt like, or kind of sounded like, a SNL skit, especially when they were talking about the Beavers. Pierce Brosnan's character, Grey Owl, goes to London to give a speech about the importance of saving the Beavers in the wilderness. And he does, like, a four-minute speech about Beavers, and he doesn't really have any expression throughout the entire speech, and he doesn't really like uh, like voc. There, like, there's no like vocal. Uh, what, what is it? Like, there's no, there's really no range to, to, his, to his vocals. So he, he's he's really not like. It's kind of like, it kind of sounds like he's like he's tone deaf in a way, just like he's vocally tone deaf, and it totally sounds like he is making fun of what he is saying. Yes, the beavers. We must save the beavers. It is very important to save the it was It was like they were, you know, he was supposed to be winning an Academy Award for that, but just trying way too hard. It felt like I was watching a ninth grade theater recital. I would have to agree. I, I didn't make that connection until you brought it up. But yes, that uh, that definitely did feel like a skit. Good, I'm glad I wasn't the only one. <laughs> uh, yeah, the movie is... And because of all that, the movie feels stale. They had a lot of stuff they could have played with. A lot of real-life stuff to play with. I mean, I read this somewhere, and I'm quoting what I read. Oh, yes, it was Richard Attenborough himself. He gave, in an interview, he said this. He was describing the character of Grey Owl of Archibald. And this is what he says. And I, he, he describes the character, and take note that if you've seen the movie, you might realize that it sounds absolutely nothing like the Grey Owl in the movie. He says that he was a, quote, liar, a lush, a bigamist, and an imposter. End quote. Two stars for me. 
Very good, sir. All right, and where would you like to go from here? Gandhi? Stop. Hindu swords. It's a promise. Go. God be with you. I'm going to hell, but not with your death on my soul. Only God decides who goes to hell. I killed a child. I smashed his head against a wall. Why? They killed my son. My boy. The Muslims killed my son. I know a way out of hell. Find a child. A child whose mother and father have been killed. A little boy or boy this high and raise him as your own. Only be sure that he is a Muslim and let you raise him as one. Back to back, Richard Attenborough. We, we we start off disappointed, but we end strong. All right. So Gandhi was, uh, of course, uh, produced and directed by Richard Attenborough. This was his dream project. He'd been wanting to do this for a long time. It did actually end up winning Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, uh, Best uh, Screenplay. I mean, so you can see where this movie was going. I mean, it definitely uh, knocked some stuff out of the park. So, yeah. And this, of course, is the 1982... It's an epic biographical film, and it dramatizes the life of Gandhi. And and I do stress dramatizes. Again, they start off even explaining there's, there's no real way to... Um, encompass this guy's life so it's more or less just kind of a tribute to the spirit of his life and it goes basically from when he decided to do something about the about racial injustice all the way up to his assassination um th- for the time period 
And again, this is a movie that has aged very well overall in terms of the acting, the cinematography, the direction. Everything is all the pieces are there. It's the reason why it's a classic. It's a great movie. Um, for me, I've seen it before. And, you know, the two times I'd seen it before were enough for me. So this viewing did not bring back all the butterflies. It did not make, you know, didn't give me any new feelings. So I am just going to leave this uh, as a four-star movie. It, it is, if you have not ever seen it before, this is one of those movies that you literally must see. If you have seen it before and you didn't play along with us and watch it, eh, you know, fits your thing great. Not, But it is a really good movie, technically a very fine movie, and shows uh, just exactly how influential one person can be in the world. Four stars. I thought Gandhi was a very, very entertaining, engrossing, enthralling epic. And you can't say that too much anymore. I mean, there you. I mean, not only do they make long, long epic movies like this anymore, but I really don't think they can even make a epic two hour or two hour and thirty minute movie this good. I mean, you have phenomenal acting all around. You have great direction. I mean, I guess if people wanted to criticize this movie, anything they could say, well, it feels old fashioned. I mean, even Grey Owl. Felt like we were watching a movie that could have been made easily in the 1940s and 1950s with Gregory Peck playing the character of Grey Owl, even. Well, Gandhi is is kind of like that, due to, I think, Richard, Richard uh, Attenborough's directing style is very old-fashioned. And it worked with the movie. You know, the movie didn't have to be nitty gritty. It had a, it had a, it, 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 the movie was about Gandhi's spirit. And like Matt was saying, they just want to try to uh, capture Gandhi's spiritual essence. And I think they did. I mean, I didn't know the guy. I mean, I didn't, I, I mean, watching this movie, I realized how little I actually knew of him. And I thought I learned a lot for the most part. And I gotta say, this movie is very entertaining. Kept my interest the entire time. Ben Kingsley's performance, holy shit, I bet that blew people out of the water in 1982. I just, it must have just been a treat. Just must have been a treat. And it still is a treat. And it's a shame that it doesn't get as much hype or doesn't get as much praise as it definitely deserves uh, now. And uh, so yeah, five stars for me. Really good movie. Gotta see it. Yeah, it's just interesting because, you know, dealing with a man who played Gandhi and then also played the Mandarin. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> not, not the best acting choices, I guess, but he was also in Thunderbirds. Oh, that's true. Yes. That's true. All right. So last but not least, of course, is the 2013 film The Congress. Now, this one is actually uh, was recently released for us digitally uh, this year but um, it actually did come out at the 2013 Cannes Film Festival and this is a French-Israeli live action animation science fiction drama film it's one of those mashups it's doing a lot of different things it's directed by Ari Fulman and stars Robin Wright um, 
This is about a. It's a movie about an actress who. Um, golly gee, I want to say this is almost kind of like. Oh my goodness. Do you remember the movie? It was Kim Basinger and I want to say Brad Pitt early on. The animation. Cool World? Yes, Cool World. There we go. This is kind of like a dramatic version of Cool World, I want to say. Um, it's not as out there in terms of trying to be um, you know, sexy and, and in your face and, and that kind of stuff. But, it, I mean, it does have a lot of those things. It's almost as if Cool World and the incredible Mr. Limpet came together and had a science fiction baby. It is a very interesting concept. I think that the lofty political overtones of the film detract from the story overall. But just in terms of sheer cinematic scope, it's worth watching. Robin White... uh, White. Robin Wright does a fantastic job, I feel, um, of playing a very nuanced character. For me, almost akin to, almost akin to Kate Blanchett and Blue Jasmine. And just to get the exploration of all the themes, it's, it's a good mashup, but it's not the, it's, and it's an interesting mashup, but I think the film very seriously borders on taking itself too seriously. And I think that by the end of the movie, it hurts it more than it helps it. That being said, three and a half stars. Definitely worth a watch. Very interesting flick. And I did like it. So, three and a half stars. There you go, sir. Bring us home, Tim. Yeah, Bring I, us home. I agree with everything that Matt said for the most part. Actually, for for the whole part, really. The movie is beautiful. The animation is great. There are some really cool, trippy scenes in the movie. And I got to see this movie at the local Sundance Theater. And it was packed. It was a packed house. In fact, the moments where the animation gets trippy, you know when she's talking to John Hamm's character and he just starts like shit just starts like growing out of him just randomly and she's just staring at him and he's as he's just talking and you know the camera is just set on him for like literally 35 40 seconds as all this weird shit is going on well i think everybody in the theater realized at that moment that five people at the very top sitting in the very back were tripping on acid and started freaking out during that moment of the movie laughing their asses off and just having a ball because they couldn't believe what the hell they were watching. Now, I wasn't on anything while watching it, and I was even kind of tripping out by watching it. But then again, that's not really the whole point of the movie. The movie, the animation is beautiful. The acting is is great. Um, The concept is a great concept i loved how how they used not only her character in the in the animation world but danny houston uh, danny houston's character in the animation world as well i loved his look 
his very gruff look. Like, it looked like him, definitely, but it kind of didn't look like him, and it was just so, so good and so cool to watch. And the whole mashup between the two, how they introduced the cartoon world, was very interesting and very surreal and very eerie and creepy. It kind of leaves you with this, with this, uh, this weird feeling, you know, as you're watching the movie, because it's like, if you know that if somebody had the power to do this, to create an animated world in the future for the sake of entertainment, for the sake of, 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 uh, of social media, somebody would. And you think about like Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and how they purchased the rights to the I I can't remember if it was the Oculus system or a version of the Oculus system to where people yeah, it was the Oculus Rift. Yeah, it's, oh Oculus so he Rift. did purchase he bought the Oculus Rift. Yeah. To where people instead of just going on Facebook on your laptop, you put on this thing and you're teleported to a virtual social media place. And there you can interact with people and you can do whatever you want. You can watch all your videos in this interactive social media digital area. Guys, it, it will not be as crazy, trippy, and ridiculous as the Congress, but technology is slowly moving towards a version of that. And with that, it adds a, 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 a an extra level of creepiness to this movie because... Uh, there's a lot of depth to it, and it's really cool. However, there is one big thing to me that uh, that slows this movie down, where the action kind of stops, and you kind of realize, oh, hey, I'm watching a movie right now, and I'm starting to feel the two-hour runtime of the movie. Or, hey, it's been 40 minutes, and there's still no animation. What's, what's taking it so long? And that's when the dialogue... Turns or goes from being normal sounding. It goes from being cheeky, funny, a play off of uh, Robin Wright playing a version of herself, to being a little bit monotonous, drawn out, and it feels like they're talking at you and spitting out all of this fancy dialogue and plot information at you. But you realize that that it's you're getting a ton of information but really it's not enough information because you really don't know what the hell they're talking about you know it's like the person trying to explain to you a joke but the time has already passed you know five minutes later and you hear the joke you you know you finally get the joke and it's not funny whatsoever well the movie doesn't necessarily get to the point to where you're tired of it you definitely get to the point to where it's you start realizing that okay, just, I'm better off not knowing, and let's just move on from there. And really, that's the only issue I had with it, but unfortunately, it happens quite a bit throughout the movie. But then again, the movie is gorgeous, very nuanced performances, and nuanced animation. There's a lot of stuff in there you can uh, you can pick out. You can pick out celebrities in the animated world. Did you see, like, Conan O'Brien, like a version of Conan O'Brien? Like in the hotel she goes to? Maybe? I did... No, I guess I missed that. Oh. <laughs> My bad. Well, there's very uh, very nuanced things that you can pick out while watching the movie, and it's very interesting, I thought. So, 3.75 for me. I definitely recommend it for those. If you're interested in it, try to find it at a movie theater or watch it on a big screen because it's totally worth it. All right. Well, there you go, Ming. 
You got it. All right. Well, there you have it then. So next week, we are going to be doing our special bonus segment, which I forgess I forgot to mention at the last of the end at the end of three squared. I'm the only one who liked it. We haven't done that for a while, so we're going to bring that back, bring it up for you, and have a good time with it. I'm the only one who liked it. The movies for next week are going to be Frank, You're Next, and Johnny Mnemonic. That's right, folks, where you two can fight for the world with a telepathic dolphin. And I think that brings us to the uh, spiel, does it not? Spiel on! Alrighty, the music that you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. And, of course, you can check us out. We're, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can go to our website, SLSCast.com. You can send an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me on Twitter at Nitwit12345. And, of course, you can always find us on Facebook, search for us, and subscribe to us on iTunes, and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Once again, thanks to our friend at that fracking cat from at Movie Nights Pod, Nights with a K, for giving us some submissions. And I would also like to thank one of my followers, Diana, who was so very nice and said that she enjoyed our show last week. She uh, said that to us last week, and she even said, here it was, enjoyed the podcast this week want to see the trip to italy now so hopefully you'll want to see one of the movies we talked about as well diana thank you and closing us out thanks to kirk douglas i get to say this i came from abject poverty there was nowhere to go but up until next time cinephiles talk to you next week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.